everybody, this is Tom Martin, and I'm really happy to introduce you to Kyla Lee, who is a very impressive uh, young criminal lawyer <laughs> here in British Columbia, and one that I think you really should know about. Uh, she's doing some really new and innovative things and uh, has a great voice uh, in terms of what she's putting out there. And so without further ado, Kyla Lee. Hi, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you. And um, like I was telling telling you before uh, we started, I've seen you popping up everywhere, and uh, you know, you've been communicating in a really great way with uh, you know the modern tools that we have, just uh, YouTube uh, videos here and there, and the way it comes across is really accessible. You know, I think lawyers we have such a hard time sometimes in not being accessible or intelligible, and you do a great job of cutting through that, so. Well, thank you. I like using technology and social media just to engage with people because, you know, like you say, there's this perception that lawyers are really inaccessible, and I think it's something that we, as lawyers, are to blame for. It's totally our own faults. Um, you know, because for a long time, marketing rules sort of prevented us from being accessible to the public. And then rules just around, you know, how we communicate with the public and, and having to second guess everything that we're saying has made a lot of lawyers shy away from that. And it's created this public perception that we're very elitist. And I don't want people to think that. I want people to think that if they have a problem that needs a lawyer, that they have somebody that they can approach who's going to help them or point them in the right direction. So if it's gotta be me, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's learn more about you. Um, so to get to this place, I'm sure that there was a lot of uh, good learning, uh, good you know, uh, background and a lot you probably learned from your parents as well. So if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, what that brought to you? So I grew up in a small town on Vancouver Island called Saanichton. It's not Saanich, which people have heard of. Um, it's in between Sydney and Saanich. And uh, it was, there's not a lot to do there. Um, my high school was surrounded by cow fields. So like our springs were spent what, like looking out the window of our classrooms to see if we could see the cows either mating or give birth. And that was like the excitement in our school. <laughs> um, and my high school years were weird because my dad was the principal of my high school. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I was always surrounded by people that knew me and knew me my whole life. And by the end of high school, I'd had enough of that like I had to get away I felt like no matter where I went um, there were just people that knew me and I couldn't be free <laughs> I mean my parents were not oppressive and they're very 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 supportive people but it was just you know I needed to, room to move on my own without being like Bob Lee's daughter um, which yeah. is how I yeah part of being in a small town right yeah everybody yeah. knows yeah. But, you know, my, like I said, my parents were really supportive. My dad, like all the time when I was a kid said, you know, Kyla, you can be anything you want to be as long as you put your mind to it. Um, which I'm not sure is entirely true. Cause I'm pretty sure no matter how hard I try, I could never be like a major league baseball player, but <laughs> it was nice that he believed in me. <laughs> it's good to hear when you're growing up for yeah. sure. Yeah. 
Um, and then I, so I moved to Vancouver um, to do my BA. I did it at UBC and I uh, got a major in First Nation Studies, minor in English Literature, and then went to law school there as well. So minor in English Literature? Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I majored in philosophy. I actually think that um, the humanities actually brings a great deal to working as a lawyer because it helps you to think a little differently, but yeah. Did that work for you? Yeah, it did. I mean, the, the English literature you don't think initially has anything to do with being a lawyer. I just really love poetry. So that's why I, I wanted to do English lit. Um, but you learn like critical analytical thinking skills and you learn to break down a piece of text and think critically about what's in there and and challenge the ideas that it's giving you and look for its hidden meaning which is actually kind of the same things you're doing when you're looking at a police reporter when you're looking at a legal document right you're looking for hidden meaning trying to think critically about what's in there and look for problems so okay so then you ended up going to law school mm -hmm. yep. what was that UBC as well so I, yeah I went to law school at UBC I like Vancouver and I because I grew up on the west coast I don't think I could live anywhere else so. is it a little too cold on the east coast <laughs> it's too cold no um and I you know I'm still close with my family I you know we had such a tight-knit family that I don't like to be too far away like I need I like the idea of being able to go there whenever I want even though I rarely actually go see them <laughs> but they're there <laughs> yeah. kind of that's great um okay so then when you went to law school did was there anything in particular that steered you towards criminal law or did that come later um yes and no uh in law school i took like primarily the classes dealing with indigenous law my plan going into law school was to do indigenous law when i was a kid i wanted to be a criminal lawyer like nancy drew's dad that's actually part of the reason i wanted to be a lawyer was reading the nancy drew books and her dad was a I want to be Nancy Drew's dad. <laughs> um, but then when I, uh, when I was in, in law school, I did well in the criminal law courses. I found it interesting. And I found kind of like the stuff you deal with in indigenous law kind of boring. I know that's not a very good thing to say, but just, you know, like setting up corporations and looking at, you know, economic development, it's all very important work, but it's not fun. And I like criminal law because the facts are hilarious. The, you, you have fun. You get to laugh about, about some of the situations that you encounter. Um, and you get to litigate. That's the other thing that drew me to it. I like arguing. I like litigation. I like the challenge of that. And with criminal law, every file is a litigation. So. And I think I read, like, in terms of the indigenous um, law that you were into for a while, that you're Matisse, right? Yes. Awesome. Um, I myself happen to be uh, part Aztec and Pueblo Indian, so. Oh, cool. My, um, one of my professors um, is, was part Pueblo when I was in my undergrad. And I read a lot about things that happened to the Pueblo. That was like a horrible history you guys have. Like the. Ah. <laughs> That's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a podcast on its own. And definitely, like, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, issues right now with civil rights and just that being on the pulse of what's going on. 
in North America. But um, yeah. but yeah. Um, okay, so then you got in a criminal law, that's where the action is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I mean, really impressed. I've seen all of the awards that and accolades that you've received. Uh, one of them I thought was particularly uh, cool was the, I think, Badass Award uh, from DUI DLA, right? Yes. Yeah. That's a huge surprise to me. It's, and it's a, it's a custom award every year, so it's different based on whoever wins it. Um, so they made me a plaque with a railway spike because I have this nickname Boxcar Kyla and I like trains. So it was all like super personal, although it was a bit difficult to get it home because it was presented to me in San Diego. And of course it was a surprise. So I didn't know I'm getting this giant railway spike and you cannot take that off. And I'd only packed for carry-on, so that was a bit of uh, a bit of a struggle, but I figured it out. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, getting to that through customs is probably a, a little difficult. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so then, um, okay, so you you decide to practice criminal law, and I see that right now you're working with Acumen, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and by the way, they have a great domain, Vancouver, you know, criminallaw.com. So yeah, great, great one to have. So with that, what kind of cases are you exposed to or do you specialize in? So I, in the last couple of years, have decided to limit my practice solely to driving offenses. It used to be that I would do any type of uh, criminal charge except for murder, but I found that I got really busy. Um, and I had a sort of natural draw to the driving offenses specifically. So now I only do immediate roadside prohibitions, driving prohibitions, traffic tickets, impaired driving charges, drug impaired driving charges, and driving while prohibited charges. And that's basically it, but it's, it keeps me insanely busy. Okay. Well, I can totally understand that there's probably a very high volume of cases that come through in that. Um, one thing I would, you know, as having some experience with practicing law myself, that some other lawyers, they, they might look at, you know, dealing with driving offenses as like a very narrow particular area, and they would probably look more towards like, the, you know, murder and, and other things. So what, what drew you to that? With driving files, you actually get this way to litigate the charter in almost every file. And if you look at like the entire history of jurisprudence around the Charter of Rights after it was brought in, the vast majority of the seminal cases that defined like our right to counsel and how that's interpreted, your right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure, the, the majority of those cases deal with people who are stopped in the context of a driving offense. Like that's where we most heavily litigate the charter. The other one would be drug drug offenses because then you have searches and seizures and right. you know, and be get engaged at some point. But um, with unlike the drug offenses, generally speaking, the people who are stopped for the driving offenses are people who are otherwise completely law-abiding citizens who don't have any contact with the police ordinarily. They're not engaged in illegal behavior ordinarily. And so usually it's in their interest to fight every angle they possibly can because they need to avoid the criminal record. 
and they have the resources often to do it um, because they're people who are working and and you know otherwise participating meaningfully in society so um, I think that they're the best thing you can do in criminal law if you like to you know make charter challenges <laughs> that's all I do every day <laughs> charter this charter that and and for our American viewers that's basically the Constitution right like the Bill of Rights yeah, yeah. and so yeah, I think it's interesting how you take something that I think some lawyers might see as, you know, driving offenses, it's kind of like a minor thing, but they're intertwined within it are some very like important issues. Um, and uh, you, you have this uh, video series that you do, I think that's called um, Cases That Should Have Gone to the Supreme Court But Didn't. Yes. Right? And uh, and one of them, you pointed out that one of the issues that, okay, normally you wouldn't think of a driving case going to the Supreme Court, but that there was one where it had to do with uh, whether or not a driving offense was considered strict liability or absolute. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. The red light camera episode. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that and how those issues come up of like, Charter of Rights and? Well, I mean, for most driving cases, you have somebody who is stopped by the police. So you have to pinpoint at what point in that interaction are they detained. And then as soon as somebody's detained in our legal system, you have this sort of two streams. There's the investigative detention where maybe you don't have to 10 A and 10 B right away, or there's the actual detention where you do have to, or the detention that amounts to a de facto arrest. And so, you know, what stream are they going down? At what point are your, is your right to counsel and your right to be informed of your reasons to detention crystallized? And once they've crystallized, have the officers made demands for searches and seizures of your breath or bodily samples um, in accordance with the provisions of the code or are section eight issues engaged there? Um, and then you get into issues about like mens rea, like, Yesterday, the Supreme Court of Canada released a ruling in Zora, which is about bail and has nothing to do with driving law. But the Zora case talks about how in our criminal justice system in Canada, we don't peel, penalize um, conduct that's not morally blameworthy. And yet, in driving offenses, we penalize people for being in care and control of vehicles while they're impaired or while they're prohibited. Right. Um, so then, you know, even understanding the genesis of criminal law helps us understand whether the circumstance in which a person who's trying their best to comply with the law is going to run afoul of it and whether that law violates their charter rights or whether that law violates the Canadian constitution. Like all of that out of a person who's sleeping it off because they drank too much and didn't want to drive home. Like all of that can be engaged. That's just so exciting to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think one example that you gave in that video had to do with um, like somebody running a red light, but hey, what if their brakes are out? Like <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't necessarily involve the fact that they're, you know, intentionally wanting to break the law. It might be that they just can't prevent themselves from, from breaking it because the brakes are out. So, yeah. And then they get punished for it because the only defense available is necessity. So, you know, is that fair? Or, I mean, probably they shouldn't be driving if their brakes are out, <laughs> but the brakes might fail, you know, while they're, while they're driving, they could have a mechanical problem suddenly occur. 
in the course of their driving that prevents them from stopping. And, you know, it's, it's important for our legal system to adjust and adapt to that. And it's important to have clarity on those issues because the vast majority of Canadians are going to have their only interactions in their lives with our justice system through their driving. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that also impressed me was these videos that you that you do, uh, because they're related to driving offenses, it makes it much more accessible. Like one that you did that I saw had to do with uh, your cell phone and that if it's tucked under your leg, that that in fact could be a, a violation of like holding uh, a phone and being distracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, the way that British Columbia's distracted driving law is written is so confusing, so um, contrary to the purpose of the law, which is to prevent people from being on their phone instead of looking at the road, um, that we get these absurd results. And it's been the subject of extensive litigation in BC. There have been cases going every which way. And, you know, getting that information out to people who are affected by it, the people who are driving that day, um, to me, the easiest way to do it is a quick, you know, 45 second video that I can throw up on social media that shows people what you can do, what you can't do, and allows them to make an informed decision without having to read 15 news articles to try and figure out what the court decision said. It's so true. I mean, lawyers, even when we're trying to do our best, we kind of bury, bury the lead, for sure. Like, the message is buried under tons and tons of uh, legalese. So, yeah. yeah, good job for that. Thank you. <laughs> so, Tell me a little bit more about your practice. Like, what is an a- what does an average day look like for you? Um, I usually I get into the office around seven thirty. I mean, right now there's really no such thing as an average day because of the whole <laughs> pandemic. Thing. But uh, ordinarily, um, if I had court, I would um, either come to the office and then go to court if court was in Vancouver, or I would go straight from my house to court, do my court appearance, and then come back to the office. Um, most days I have hearings with the superintendent of motor vehicles. So I'll have anywhere between one and five hearings with the superintendent and they're half hour hearings, um, dealing with the validity of road driving prohibitions for impaired driving. And then usually most days before the pandemic, there would be traffic court in an afternoon. So I'd hop in my car and drive out to Richmond or New Westminster or drive up the street to the Robson Square, Poco, North Van, do traffic court, come back to the office and be on the phone and writing letters and just getting through everything. <laughs> Long days. Yeah, sounds like a full day. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you have a lot of help at the yes. front? I have a ton of help and I don't think I'd be able to survive without it. Um, so we have at our firm at any given time between two and five students. And then there are three um, front end support staff. I have one legal assistant and then we have um, one person who sort of runs between places, does coverage plus two accounting and multiple junior associates. So how many, how many cases do you think you normally handle within a month or like a month yeah probably like 50 roadside prohibition hearings 
15 to 20 traffic tickets and I usually have a, a criminal trial booked every day um, but they resolve so the, it'll generally resolve before like in the six or eight weeks before trial but I will also have a trial every day <laughs> if they don't so it's a lot there's a lot that's going on yeah. um, it's just time management is key and how do you do that is there some trick or some way that you use to manage your time that you think is really effective or helpful? I think I just have systems in place for when in the day I do certain things. Um, and it just, it becomes a part of my routine um, so that I do the things that I need to get done done without even thinking about it. Um, and I, to me, that helps. I make a lot of to-do lists um and just you know systematically cross things off and if i'm feeling really like troubled about getting motivated one thing i do is i put stuff on the to-do list that i know i'm gonna do anyway like shower eat lunch <laughs> you know walk the dog and then you feel that momentum of crossing something off which inspires me to get more done yeah i totally agree building that momentum especially at the beginning of the day the checking checking them off very helpful yeah. That was like indispensable to me during like the stay at home time because it, otherwise I'd be sitting in bed watching Netflix all day if I didn't have a list and <laughs> getting stuff done. And it turns out I, I think I worked more hours in the day when I was supposed to be, you know, quarantining myself than when I was not. <laughs> yeah, I hear that's kind of a common thing for, for us lawyers and uh, those that just like to keep themselves busy in general, that people have been working a little bit more. But um, so to bring up another video, um, one that I saw that I thought was really hilarious was uh, just recently, I think it was recently, um, you and a scientist, you took some Tibet, like I guess some people, some defendants yeah. would tell you, hey, like, if I chewed tobacco, would that cause a false positive on, on blowing for a DUI stop or something like that? And so you and the scientist actually tested that theory. If you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, it wasn't a scientist. It was just Paul Doroshenko. So he's another lawyer that works. Right. The yeah. We just dressed up like scientists because we have a costume closet. Like, I don't know very many law firms that do, but like, I've got a basket full of wigs in my office. Like, I don't know. Um, so we dressed up like scientists, um, green screened ourselves into a lab. And yeah, we put, we will, our sort of line is we'll put anything in our mouth in the name of science. I mean, there's, there's limits. We haven't found them yet, but um the so one thing that we were asked to test was whether chewing tobacco can cause false readings on breathers and there's ethanol in chewing tobacco which is what made me particularly concerned about it because of course ethanol is your drinking alcohol so should have got false readings i don't know that we did the experiment very well because it was so gross i didn't want to like you know allow the juices to accumulate in my mouth in right. a way that created mouth alcohol so I can't say that we definitively ruled it out, but yeah, we didn't get any reading, which surprised me. Yeah, I think, you know, when you, it was only like 30 seconds or so that it was in your mouth and I could, I totally get it. It's, that's, it's gross. I, I actually have tried that stuff before. Um, but yeah, I regret it. Um, 
but but interesting though that you know the way you're handling it like these are definitely like questions you get from defendants that are talking to you about this stuff and then the way you like creatively address it with this this mock-up lab is is really funny um and the and the fact that you have these different you know outfits and costumes and stuff which basically help to to get across these points in a way that is easier for people to understand. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people are more likely, maybe I'm wrong, but I think people are more likely to engage in a, with a video where, you know, somebody's in a costume, they've got it all set up, like it's got this interesting sort of feel as opposed to like a lawyer against a backdrop speaking in a suit about residual mouth alcohol. Like I've seen those videos and I turn them off. Not. Yeah. Perhaps just say something mean about other lawyers, but you know, I like to spice it up. <laughs> yeah, and it's what we're used to, right? Like when when we like in our own lives personally go through videos, um, the ones that connect better are like that. Um, my daughter just recently introduced me to TikTok, and um, that that in itself is a little addictive, but to the point, like it gets to the point, and you know, does a good job of communicating. So one of the questions I have for you that would help people that are watching is like, okay, you, you, you've done these different videos. You're really good at communicating um, and being accessible. Like, how did you get that start? What, like what, what crossed your mind to, to do that in the first place? I don't even know what, where I got the idea to start doing things like this. I always was, like theatrical. Um, when I was in school, I was like on every, you know, theater group and improv and this, that, and the other thing. Um, I dragged my dad to like the vagina monologues that I was performing in. Yeah. Uh, but he was very supportive. <laughs> it was like probably the worst moment of his life, but he sat through it and told me I did a good job. Um, good. The, it, yeah, I know. Um, so I, I think it was just always something I'm inclined to do through law school. In my first year as a lawyer, I modeled to make some extra money. Um, and I, I don't know, I just like to be performative, I guess. Um, and then something came to me one day that I was going to create a video series about cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't. And now we're, I don't know, a hundred and something episodes in and wow. can't stop now. <laughs> so cases that could have, should have gone to the Supreme Court but didn't, then you sometimes do experiments in the lab and I'm sure some Every other places. And then yeah. there's uh, Kyla's Court too, right? Yeah, that was a that was just a joke. Um, during the during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, and like especially film and television productions were shut down, I love Judge Judy and the People's Court and Hot Bench and all those shows. Um, and I was sad that they weren't filming new episodes of it. So I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna make myself like a judge show and I'll get people to submit fake disputes on Twitter and I'll dress up like a fake judge and rule on them. And I was surprised at how many people submitted their crazy disputes. And I mean, some people definitely made some up, but some were very real. Um, and so I, I made rulings. So we have a new episode of that every 
every Wednesday and every Friday. Um, but it's not going to be forever. It'll just be until things go back to normal and then, then it'll end because you can only poke so much fun at, at fake court before you get in trouble. So, okay. So that kind of answers that question. Like my follow-up question was going to be, so when you have these different, um, like these different, um, I'm going to edit this out. But when you, when you have different categories of videos that you're working on, uh, do you like have a running schedule mm -hmm. for each one of them? And like, how do you, how do you keep that moving forward? Yeah, we do have a running schedule. So cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't is every Monday, except for Mondays that are holidays. Um, Can You Fail It is every other Tuesday, except Blackout Tuesday. Um, Wednesdays and Fridays, as I said, is Kylo's Court. And then I have my podcast on Fridays. And on Wednesdays, I also do a blog series called Weird and Wacky Wednesdays, where I talk about three hilarious legal cases. So it's a lot of work. Wow. Um, I film, we try and film as many as possible in one shoot day. So we'll go, I'll do like 10 cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't videos. Then my mind turns off because I cannot talk about 10 cases in two minute videos in ideally one take um, before like, I'm just like mentally drained from it. Um, but I try and film as many as possible in one go and then do the next series and the next series. Okay, so that's one way of managing it. It's just like taking it all one foul swoop and like not spreading it over each day and kind of like having too much to do. Exactly. Because if I were doing, if I were filming a different video, basically every day of the week, I wouldn't have time for anything else. Right. Yeah. And it would probably take kind of the fun out of it, right? Yeah, it would. And it's hard, even like with the amount that I'm doing now, sometimes it's like, oh my God, do I have to film more videos? But then you're like, yeah, I do. I do have to do it. And I like the finished product is always, you know, it's, it's always way better than the, you know, experience of putting yourself up against your green screen or your blue screen and talking to a camera. And like a lot of them, I just do like myself. I have a studio in my basement that I built and then I own a marketing company. So we have a separate studio that we use and we just do it. <laughs> it's weird. It's just like if somebody walked by my house, they'd see me alone in my basement, like talking to myself for 15 minutes about strange stuff. Yeah. Okay, so if you took the whole day, like 100% pie, and you were to slice it up, how much of that do you think, or of let's say like a month of your practice, how much of that would be like creating videos and, and doing that stuff? Every month, probably like four, four days. Okay. Would be dedicated to all the different, all the different videos and social media projects. And another follow-up would be, like for a lot of practicing lawyers that might be watching this, they're thinking, oh man, why would I do that? I mean, th does it lead to business? Does it lead to like some people calling you about um, their problems? I can't say that it, I've gotten any clients directly as a result of any of it, but I have had a lot of clients who've said, I watched all of your videos and I really liked you because I watched all your videos and you explained things well or, you know, whatever. So I think it, well, it might not 
bring in new clients, I think it increases the level of confidence that my clients have in me at the beginning of the relationship, which makes it easier to get done what we need to get done. Right. And lastly, does it, does it not make the practice of law that much more fun? It's so much more fun. <laughs> I, I honestly love that people are engaging with the law and interested. Like there are people who message me after every video and, and want to talk about a legal issue, which, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up with all the messages, but it's like, wow, like here are lay people who want to talk about the law with lawyers. And that's, you know, that's how far just me doing this has brought the profession in the sense of like, people see a lawyer on the internet as somebody they can approach and have like a totally normal conversation with. And that's good for access to justice. And I, I, I wish, you know, I know you said lots of lawyers wouldn't want to do this, but I wish more would. I would love to see creative videos from lawyers and making the law something that's for everybody because it's supposed to be that way. Amen to that. Like I definitely, <laughs> I definitely agree with you on that. I mean, part of, you know, part of what we do as lawyers is to be more inclusive and to help people that maybe would not necessarily be able to afford us. You know, it's a profession and vocation and not just uh, a business. So that, yeah, is something that if more lawyers participated in that, I think the world would be a better place. Agreed. So tell me a little bit about what your plan for the future is. Keep going. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know. I, it's sort of, I'm constantly asking myself, okay, I've, I've done this. I've done, you know, all of these things. Where do I go next? Because yeah. in order to keep people engaged, you have to keep generating new content. So, you know, challenging myself to think of new things that will allow more people to connect with lawyers and, and to see us as just normal, cool people um, or really lame people, depending on how you view myself. Um, and, you know, win more cases. Yeah. That's all on the list for the future, win more. <laughs> I, I also wanted to talk with you about, about this moment, like in history that we're at. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much going on. Um, you have civil, you know, civil rights is like front and center. Uh, Black Lives Matter matters. There's, um, you know, cases recently out of the U.S. Supreme Court for LGBTQ uh, rights being protected against discrimination and um, DACA being upheld for now. Um, and uh, if you feel comfortable, I'd like to get some of your input about what you think about this moment in time and if it's something that's going to lead to a better world or do you think things would just stay the same? I hope it leads to a better world. Like, we can't keep going at the rate we're going. I mean, we're, we're eliminating, I'm going to get, you know, dragged for saying this, but I think that what is happening with violence by police against people of color, what is happening to indigenous Canadians is just a continuation of, of what's been going on for hundreds of years in history, which is a form of genocide. It's just, you know, are you, are you committing the genocide in sort of the obvious ways that we think of when we use that word, or is it something more subtle? And in the same way that 
advertising has changed to become more subtle, so too has oppression. Oppression is now in these really subtle, really damaging ways where it allows police officers to think that it's just fine to shoot a man who was drunk and passed out behind the wheel in the back while he's running away. And you know that wouldn't have happened if he'd been white. Um, it, it allows officers like the ones that dealt with Chief Alan Adam to think that you can do a flying punch into somebody's face just because they're indigenous and they're mad. And if what's happening now doesn't change things, if you know the, the protests, uh, the peaceful protests and the unpeaceful protests doesn't change things, then I worry about what it's going to take to affect the change that we need. Because if this isn't gonna do it, we're gonna have an all in out war. And I'm not exactly gonna say that we shouldn't if this isn't gonna make any meaningful change, so. I hear you 100%. I do hope as you do that it leads to a better world. And uh, yeah, I don't know what more would need to happen. <laughs> Uh, and hopefully it's not more that needs to happen for there to be um, meaningful change. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, I'm in this like extremely privileged position, you know, because I'm a lawyer, um, because I look like a white person. Um, I get to occupy all of these spaces that I wouldn't get to occupy if my skin were darker. And my mom, is, has the similar privilege that I do. When she was growing up, her cousin, who also Métis, same family, right? Um, she had darker skin, dark eyes, dark hair, and they'd ride the bus to school together, and the nuns would be complete crap to my mom's cousin and treat my mom well. And it was solely on the basis of the fact that one of them had darker skin, even though they had the same like biological makeup, the same, you know, the same type of behavior. They're basically the same person. Um, it, it, my mom had to learn to use her her whiteness to pass and use that as a shield. And it, like I didn't learn about my Métis heritage until I was a teenager because. My mom was so scared. She left Alberta. She moved to um, first to Northwest Territory and then to Vancouver Island. She was so scared to tell anybody about it because she thought, you know, based on her how she grew up, if people knew, they would treat her differently. So it wasn't until I was a teenager that I was actually even let in on the, you know, the big secret. Um, and I lost so much, like so much opportunity to connect with my culture, so much just ability to learn about myself because of that. And so, you know, I get, the, I'm in these weird spaces where on the one hand, like colonialism has directly impacted me and it's prevented me from, you know, 13 years of getting to know who I am and where I come from. And at the same time, I get all these benefits from it because this is my skin color, which is just purely as a result of winning a genetic lottery that, shouldn't exist like it shouldn't be an issue so uh, yeah Kyla, I, I really thank you for sharing your story um you know it's it's one that i think a lot of people share um i know that some of what you're saying you know i i definitely feel parallels in some of that too 
and um, I think the more and more we realize that we're we're all one, you know, uh, and things will go in a much better direction instead of fighting one another. Just uh, coming together um, is my hope for the future. Yep. So, anyways, Kyla, thank you so much. Uh, for sharing, um, you know, your story and your heart with us. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and I honestly wish you the best with the future. I think that you're going to do even more than, you know, like extraordinarily well. Uh, you already have, and um, I think it's the future is very bright for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Thanks. Well, for those uh, who watched through this and would like to keep in touch with you, how, how best for them to follow up? Um, you can find me on Twitter at IRP Lawyer, or you can find our website, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or shoot me an email, Kyla at KylaLee.ca. Or call me. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Kyla, and um, I wish you the best. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome.